0: As God's people have dug through the treasure chest of the Psalms over millennia, they have worn the armor of instruction. They have tasted the delights of praise. They have marveled at the glimpses of God in the treasure chest of the Psalter. There is one sparkling jewel in this treasure chest, though, that has a gravitational pull on the people of God psalm 23 perhaps like me you have gazed at the verdant pastures and drank at the still waters of this very famous prayer of david now when you traverse the landscape of psalm 23 i wonder where your heart settles in reading it is it at the image of god himself being your shepherd is it at the courage in death's shadow fostered by God's very own presence? Is it at the table of God's overflowing blessing? Where does your heart settle? Well, for me, it's in the final verse of the psalm, particularly the first part of the verse. It's like the abuterol to my often asthmatic heart. It says this, Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I repeat that all the time. If Psalm 23 is the crown jewel of the treasure chest, then Ezra 8 is like the random pen cap in the junk drawer. It is not beautiful. It is ordinary. But examine Ezra 8 a little more closely, and you will discover that this very ordinary and almost obscure chapter bears the same beauty as Psalm 23. There's a phrase that repeats in this chapter. It like keeps the rhythm of this chapter like a metronome. The good hand of our God was upon us. That phrase is just scattered throughout this very ordinary and almost obscure chapter. It tells us, friends, that we need chapters like Ezra 8 as much as we need chapters like Psalm 23. Because we can quote Psalm 23 up and down, but its comfort will dry up if we can't see it displayed in real life. And that's it. The beautiful passages of the Bible will lose their luster for us if we keep them in the clouds and we never see how they function at the street level. Friends, Ezra 8 is Psalm 23 in real life at the street level. So I pray today that through Ezra 8, God helps us treat his goodness as more than a concept to quote, but as a reality to live by. Here's what I think is the main point of the chapter. We got started and we will finally make it only because of the glorious goodness of God. Three sections for our time. In Ezra 8, we will see the hand of God for good in the departure, in the delay, and in the destination. First, we'll see the hand of God for good in the departure. We left off with the surprising plan of God in Ezra chapter 7. Israelites were settled in their homes again. They had finished rebuilding the temple, and now they needed development. But what did God do? He sent Ezra, the Bible scholar, a scribe skilled in the law of God because God knew that his people needed something more than the building blocks of geopolitical success. They needed renewal and revival. They needed hearts for him. So through the bold faith that God gave to Ezra, God got Ezra back to Jerusalem with the support of the Persian king Artaxerxes. This is chapter 7. So through a Bible scholar, not only would Israel receive all the funds that they needed for the ongoing work of the temple, they would also get the law of God reestablished among them, all with the support of a foreign king. God did more than anything his people could have done on their own And God did more than anything they would have asked for on their own, too. That's chapter 7. And the very last verse of Ezra, chapter 7, tells us that Ezra followed through with what Artaxerxes permitted him to do, that is to return to Jerusalem and bring whoever he wanted with him. So it says he gathered leading men to go with him, and chapter 8 begins with a list of those leading men. More specifically, they're the heads of the father's household. So Ezra reasoned that if he could convince the leaders of the community to join him, then they, in turn, could convince others. It's like the first pyramid scheme or something. His strategy worked. (laughs) Now, believe it or not, in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 8, the hand of God for good is powerfully at work in a list of 18 men and the 1,500 other guys they brought with them. In these first 14 verses of this chapter, God moves for good, or moved for good, in at least three ways. First, he gave these men faith. He gave these men faith to lead. We know this because what came before in the book of Ezra, the previous chapter, chapter 7, verse 13. King Artaxerxes told Ezra, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. Who freely offers. So should I stay or should I go now? All the men listed at the beginning of chapter eight had to answer that question. It was up to them. And to us, the answer is obvious, right? What are you thinking? Go back to your homeland. This is what you've been waiting for after all, isn't it? But like the other exiles who returned to Israel before these guys in chapter 8, they had decades living in a new place. Decades. No matter how strange and foreign that new place was, enough time there can make it feel like home. Enough time there, your affections start to change so that you love Babylon a little bit more than you love Jerusalem. We can sympathize with that as we've reflected over weeks past. Many of us have lived in the same house for a long time. Just talking about her before the service, but I think Helen McClung has all of us beat. She's lived at her little house on Agnes in Brook Park for over 60 years. I mean, no wonder you grow attached. And these people probably began to develop those same feelings, and yet, They chose to go. They chose to leave because Babylon was not their true home. All the way back in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God stirred up the first generations of exiles who left Babylon and returned to Jerusalem. He likely did the same thing here. Friends, may God give us the same faith that remembers where our true home is. So that we would not set our minds on earthly things, but on the things that are above. Well, how appropriate is this prayer for the stage of life of our church? As we prepare to leave this place, we thank God for his grace to us here. And then we remember something like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. Here we have no lasting city. When we seek the city that is to come. So even in a list of names that are hard to pronounce, God moved for good, first, to give these men faith, and second, to give them a second chance. To give them a second chance. So if you flip back earlier in the book to chapter 2, verses 3 to 15, you're going to find another list of exiles who returned to Jerusalem. And you're going to find a lot of the same names that are listed here in chapter 8. And that is except for Joab in verse 9. That tells us, it gives us a little bit of insight that families divided over the original call to leave Babylon for Jerusalem. People in the same family, some of them stayed and some of them left. So the group here in Ezra chapter 8 they descended from the group who decided not to return back in chapter two. The group that decided to stay in Babylon instead of return and go home to Jerusalem. And in here, they're given another chance. Pastor John Omucheke, he's Nigerian, he tells a story about Erica, uh, the black girl from South Dallas, who got pregnant in college by a black man from North Houston, who was a potential felon. And John asks, how do you think that story ends? It's, it's then we, we start to fill in the blanks, we probably finish the story with stigmas and stereotypes. We'll say that Erica will be a single mom with multiple kids and end up on some kind of government assistance. That a better better ending is possible, but it is not probable. Well, Erica heard the gospel at a gospel, at a college retreat. And she she had heard about Jesus before, but she always thought that God was out of reach for people like her. Then she heard that God would accept her based not on what she has done, but based on what Christ has done in her place. So the direction of Erica's life changed. But she was a young Christian, needed some growth. She lived with her boyfriend at the time. She knew she needed to stop. But she still ended up pregnant. The gospel was in her heart. And with the gospel in her heart already, Erica had the assurance of God's grace which allowed her not to renounce hope. So she told herself when she found out she was pregnant, okay, this happened. How do I be a woman of God now in this situation? So her and her boyfriend walked in repentance, got married, and they've been close to the Lord ever since. Erica missed opportunity after opportunity, and God's grace remained. If you sat in these pews countless times, but you have not embraced Christ, you've passed up opportunities to do so, it's not too late. If you Always ask yourself, how will I ever get over this mistake? How will I leave behind the choices I've made? There's good news. If God didn't give grace to those who have passed up opportunities, to those who have made poor choices, to those who have sinned against him, well then, who could he give grace to? Let Erica's story, the story of the man in Ezra 8, Let that prove that out of God's goodness, he gives grace to sinners. So to those far from God, let the kindness, patience, and goodness of God lead you back to him. So in the departure, there's one more way God moved in goodness for these people. He gave them faith. He what was our second point? He gave them a second chance Take taking notes, thank you And he preserved his people And prepared for Christ That's the third way, preserved his people And prepared for Christ Alright, we're going to get into some details here Look at chapter 8, verse 2 The first two returnees, Ezra named They come from two lines of priests That descended from Aaron uh, As the kids would say, the OG high priest Phineas was Aaron's grandson, and Ithamar was one of Aaron's sons. Now, after the priestly descendants, Ezra then names a figure that descends from David. So what's he doing? Now, if we just skimmed at this, at this random group of men that wouldn't even fill a single section of Brown Stadium, we wouldn't see how God moved in mighty ways in this list. So, here in the priestly figures, God preserved the worship of his name. More than that, though, this small group of men, through it, he preserved the promise of the Messiah, the one who would come through the line of David and be the ultimate grace to sinners by giving his life as a ransom for them. So, that's God's good hand in the departure. Now, let's look at the hand of God for good in the delay. This year, the exterior illumination, as Clarkers will put it, of my house for the Christmas season, it involved no falls from ladders, no stapled thumbs, and no punching Santa Clauses. (laughs) My father-in-law helped me. Besides an extra pair of hands, he provided sage advice. Now, admittedly, it was more common sense than sage advice. But in the past, my modus operandi for hanging up Christmas lights is just to throw up the strands, find out that half of them don't work, and find out that the other half are plugged in in the wrong direction, and then fight having a nervous breakdown in the driveway. (laughs) Well, this year, my father in law restrained my shoddy workmanship. So we did the novel steps. First, we plugged in the strands to make sure they work. Second, we laid them out on the ground to make, su- to make sure we had enough length. Third, we put the plugs of each strand in the right direction so that they would all end up at the same outlet. And then we hung them up. <laughs> yeah, there was a delay, but the delay was for good. Actually, served to smooth the process a lot. So Ezra, verse 15, he gathered the leading men and their crew to head back to Jerusalem, but he voluntarily delayed the journey for three days. They camped next to a river that was likely a canal in the city of Babylon called Ahaba. It'd be like if you're taking a vacation to Florida driving down 71 and you stop for the night on Route 18 in Medina. Why would you do that? <laughs> but God used the delay for good. He secured their trust in him, and he secured their obedience to him. Let's read verses 15 to 30. Okay. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahaba. And there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there not, none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elmethon, Jareb, Elmethon, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshur, leading men, and for Jorabib and Elmethon, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Casiphia. Telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Cassidyah, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, eighteen. Also Hashabiah, with and with him Jeshiah and the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, twenty, besides two hundred and twenty of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted, and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold of the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel their present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold gold worth 1,000 derricks and, best, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to, to Jerusalem to the house of our God. God's good hand in the delay. I think we again can see at least three ways God moved for good their faith to cause them to live out their calling. God's hand moved for good to call out the disobedient. Hold on a second. This is good? Call out the disobedient? Well, when we fail to do what we should do, and fail to recognize it, we need confrontation. You know this truth. That the good we need isn't always the good we want. So there were no Levites in Ezra's traveling party, but not because there were no Levites in exile. Levites were the tribe that God set apart to assist the priests at the temple. And the head honcho of Persia himself, Artaxerxes, said that anybody could go back to Israel if they wanted, but none of the Levites showed up. Apparently, they preferred life in Babylon, and life in exile, to the place that God had called them to go. You would have questions for somebody who identifies as a physical trainer, but when you saw their car, you saw that it was filled with bags from Burger King. (laughs) Christians have the identities of being followers of Christ, ambassadors for Christ, children of God, priests to the kingdom of God, but I bet people have questions for us based on our patterns and our attitudes. Just as physical trainers and Christians can live contrary to their identity. So the Levites did here. But the story continues. There were no Levites in the group, and instead of using my dad's favorite phrase, eh, good enough. <laughs> Ezra commissioned uh, Ezra commissioned men to find Levites. Go out and find them. Now he was careful about the kind of men he sent. Verse sixteen, he sent men of his insight. He was careful to tell them what to say. See that in verse seventeen. And so he sent them to a local city where he knew there'd be Levites. And they got not just a high quantity of Levites. They got also a high quality of Levites. Notice the first man mentioned, he's called a man of discretion. Now just notice a a quick detail I think is significant. We can spot the timing of all these events if we pay attention to the dates mentioned in chapters 7 and 8. Chapter 7, verse 9 says that Ezra set out on the first day of the first month of the seventh year of Artaxerxes. First day of the first month. Then they all came to the river Ahava for three days, chapter 8, verse 15. They finally left for Jerusalem on the twelfth day of the first month, chapter 8, verse 31. This means that there was a gap about of one week long, where the Levites were summoned, where they made preparations, they joined the returnees and they set out for the land. In a matter of one week, they dropped everything, their entire lives, 260 of these guys, and they left it behind for the kingdom. Have you discovered the treasure that would cause you to do that? The Lord Jesus is more precious than anything the world can offer. Any cost that comes with following Jesus is worth it. So, how did Ezra's group go from no Levites to a bunch of Levites in just a matter of a week? Verse 18 The good hand of our God was on them. You see, here, God worked good out of confrontation. Love your brothers and your sisters enough to do this when they need it. And know at times, you're going to need it. Notice also, God worked good for the unfaithful Levites. He brought them back to him. Thank God he does the same thing for us. I love and I need this verse. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13. It sums up how God treated the Levites here. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Verses 21 to 23, we see the second way God works for good in the delay. He caused Ezra to live out his faith. He caused Ezra to live out his faith. So Ezra, he's got all the people he needs, he's got all the funds he needs to return to Jerusalem, but now he's actually got to take first steps Put one foot in front of the other. There was no TSA security screening before their departure. Neither would highway police patrol the roads that they would walk on. This small group of people carrying a ton of money would walk hundreds of miles alone. We often don't know who we are until we're under pressure. When your safety and your money are under serious threat, where do you turn? You Look at Israel's history. They didn't always turn to God. It's often the case. They sought help from other nations. Help from nations that didn't worship God. And you know how they would have to get that help? they'd have to placate the, 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 the gods of those nations. So here, Ezra. When their safety and their money were under serious threat, they humbled themselves before God, they fasted, and they prayed. God, listen, we're not legalistic, I just wonder, when's the last time you fasted? When's the last time you really prayed like this? Wow, just, do we love food that much that we, like, we can't even skip a meal to seek the Lord? Well, Ezra, he could have asked King Artaxerxes for protection on the journey. I, they seem to be pretty close buds from chapter 7. But Ezra said that he was ashamed to ask Artaxerxes for help, that he wasn't too proud to accept help, and it's not wrong to accept help either. After all, Ezra was fine accepting Artaxerxes' money. Now, it's just Ezra was convicted to live out the faith that he proclaimed. Made a big deal, talked a big game to Artaxerxes. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of God. He convinced Artaxerxes to enforce the law of God in Jerusalem. But when it came to actually depending on God in a real, tangible way, would Ezra back it up? Yeah. Yeah. I constantly ask the Lord to help me close the gap between my willingness to talk about Jesus from behind the pulpit with my willingness to talk about Jesus in public. God, close that gap. It's easy to be a Christian here. It is. Ezra's example reminds us that we can't be Christians just at church. You have to be Christians in the world. So for those of you who don't follow Christ here this morning, thank you for being here. It's a good place to be. Consider the content of Ezra's faith in verse 22. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. To obtain favor from God, I'm not referring to health and wealth, I'm referring to peace with God for now and eternity. To obtain that, you must turn from forsaking God to seeking him. Romans 10, verse 13 promises that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Out of his goodness, God provides deliverance from his wrath through the voluntary work of his son on the cross. God's good hand is on those who stand, not in themselves, but in Christ. So Ezra believed that God listens to the prayers of his people, so even without a great army, but with the great God, he prepared these people for the journey. So here we see the third way God moves for good in the departure. He caused them to live out their calling. Ezra set apart priests uh, to guard the money, guard the loot. These men may not have been the warriors of the society, but they should have been the most trustworthy. Since they had had different kinds of coins and precious metals, the most effective way to count it was not to count it, but to weigh it. Because if you counted it, then a crafty thief could just shave some metal off of some coins and you wouldn't be able to tell. Now, that's just a detail note. Notice the names of some of the priests as were set apart in verse 24. Notice those names. Have have we seen any of those names before? Those two guys? Look back at verses 18 and 19. Those names pop up again. So it tells us some of these men entrusted to guard the loot of money were among the cowards who loved Babylon too much to leave. And now they would carry a massive amount of money across a strange and dangerous desert. Ezra is either a fool for choosing these men or God redeems the unfaithful and makes them faithful. I choose the latter. God is in the business of redemption. And transformation. Remember how we did the same for the apostles. You see, in a span of a few short chapters, Peter went from denying Jesus to being arrested because he talked about Jesus too much. I've heard a church planner in Scotland, he plans churches in the slums of Scotland, and he watches out for drug dealers. Not because he's scared of them, no but because he's seen how the Lord redeems their influence with people and their high administrative skills for the kingdom. And if you are in Christ, God has redeemed and transformed you. He has replaced your heart that used to reject him and that did not love him, and he has given you a new heart that desires him. Now, last thing here, in the delay, look at how Ezra spoke to the men he entrusted with the money. Verse 28 says, you are holy to the Lord. The vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a free-will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Notice what this does not say. Guys, the king has given us a really important job. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Rather, he said You belong to the Lord And this money belongs to the Lord Guard it You put yourself in Sherebiah's In Hashemiah's place You used to live in the opposite way You were supposed to live But God brought you back to himself anyway And if you really understood that You would understand that everything you have comes not from you, but from the goodness of God. And why wouldn't you want to live in a way that honors him? It reminds me of Paul's appeals to the Corinthians that we covered just a couple months ago. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God. Friends, God acted in goodness in every part of Ezra, chapter 8. In the departure, in the delay, and finally, in the destination. Read along with me, verses 31 to 36. It says, Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Marimoth, the priests, and Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Yeshua, and no- Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity... The returned exiles offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Verse 31. It's kind of a part two, a second take of the departure. Remember, their first was delayed with a gathering at the river Ahaba, where God secured their trust in him and their obedience to him. But now they're on the road again. Chapter 7, verse 9 tells us that this nearly thousand-mile journey took four months. But God's good hand remained with them. See verses 31 to 32. It says God delivered them from their enemies and the ambushes, and they walked safely into Jerusalem. Friends, does that seem anticlimactic? I mean, we got a chapter's worth of buildup for this journey, and now we get one verse that describes it. Now, before we throw shade on Ezra's storytelling ability, consider that there's a purpose behind the brevity of verse 31. When you are focused on the destination and the mission to get there, the trials along the way don't loom so much. Why make a big deal about four hard months when they had new lives in Jerusalem? The quickness with which verse 31 describes the journey, I think it relates to the perspective we're gonna have in heaven. Not just not that we'll forget the afflictions of our sojourn on earth. They just won't be worth dwelling on when we consider the life that we have now. So even if God provided protection from outside foes, the people among them could have grifted off the money. But verse 34 tells us what happened at the end of their journey. Says the whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Everything was there. At the end of the journey, they did their job. You know, the only, faith, the only way we will have faith in Christ at the end of our journey is if God's good hand is upon us. It's the only way. We'll need to walk not with the goal to prove ourselves, but with the goal to plead. Please the one who has already saved us. We will need, like the Levites had on their journeys, we'll need others by our side. Others who will encourage us, watch out for us, confront us. If we're going to finish the race remaining believing in Jesus, we will need the one who, according to Jude, verse 24, is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory With great joy. Indeed, great joy comes at the close of this chapter, verses 35 to 36, when the exiles finally returned to Jerusalem. As with all this book, God's good hand fulfilled his purposes. You may remember, chapter 7 contains Ezra's mission to return to Jerusalem and establish the law of the Lord and the law of the king. What do we see at the close of chapter 8? Ezra returned to Jerusalem and the people made sacrifices in accord with the law of the Lord and fulfilled their obligations to the king. God's good hand is behind it the whole time. Friends, God's goodness was at every part of this story. And it is at every part of our story as well. In our salvation, in our sanctification, in our destination, God is good. As a church, when we decided to leave this place, when we delayed to consider where to go next, and when we moved, God's goodness is at each part of that story. But of course, this takes work to believe, doesn't it? One thing to say, much of the Christian life, as one author puts it, the book called *Gentle and Lowly*, much of the Christian life is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who He is. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place. Let Ezra 8 stand as proof against our natural inclination that God has an out for us. Any proof in this chapter is an echo of the ultimate proof of God's goodness. Jesus Christ, who shows us God's heart of goodness in real life and proved it at the cross where he stood in our place let's pray oh good father thank you for your goodness to us that follows us every single day all of our salvation from beginning to end from eternity past to eternity future We owe to you and your goodness. God, help us to see. Help us to trust you. That we are safe being completely dependent. Even if we are completely vulnerable and a threat in the world. If we belong to you, goodness and mercy will follow us every single day. Thank you. In Jesus' name.